This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, folks. Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I am your co-host, Nadia Butt. I'm an organizational development and belonging strategist, and I am joined by your other co-host, Rob Hadley, a people and culture strategist specializing in DE&I and people analytics. Hello, Rob. How are you doing this week? Nadia, it's so great for you to have me with you today. <laughs> thanks for, thanks for calling me week- up. What are we doing? Oh, uh, what are we doing here today? Well, you know, just a little bit of this and a little bit of that. <laughs> Hey, Nadia, I yeah. uh, I was excited to, to talk to you. Last week, you asked me about my first concert. Yes. We talked about my our first concerts. So yeah, I thought right. about you this week when uh, it was revealed that Justin Bieber, right, his catalog had sold oh, for $200 million. Did you see this? No, I didn't see this. I was watching a lot of Taylor Swift news, though. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But, so first of all, I was shocked that there was a catalog of Justin Bieber songs. That was that was news to me. And then also like that that two hundred million dollar price tag that was uh-huh. right like that's a bet by someone that people are going to want to listen to Justin Bieber's songs for a really long right. time into the future. And I, I for one, hope that's a miscalculation on their part. But Wait, you don't like I, the song, baby, baby, baby? <laughs> so maybe, maybe, maybe you would have paid two hundred million. So that was that was my question for you this week no. as we kick things off. Give me one artist that you'd be willing to pay. $200 million. I'll give you $200 million and you can you can pay for someone's collected works. Who would it be? I mean, like the most like contemporary, like modern person would probably be like John Legend or Adele. I love Sam Smith, but I feel like I got to go with like a U2, like a band, like U2. I don't think $200 million would get the U2s. No, I don't, like, I don't think, I don't know. Bono's really like, like he's really giving. So maybe. <laughs> Well, that's a great question. Well, who would you? Who, let's throw that question back to you. I was looking strategically, and oh, I was looking at, at, at people that hadn't sold their 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 music catalog so far. And so I thought the Talking Heads would be a good one. So my okay. my son uh, will listen to Talking Heads when they come on, uh, and then of course the great Bobby McFerrin. And don't worry, be happy. I thought I I thought oh. that would be worth two hundred million just by itself, right? Interesting. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, did you like do? I just did you run up. some like I just, statistic was... analysis around this? <laughs> just kidding. I I think people will always need to not worry and be happy. Oh, be I love right? that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, Naya, let's get to. Yeah. Uh, should we do some deets? 
let's get to let's get to the deets. Yeah, kick it off here. Um, in a piece for the Atlantic, writer Jamel Hill writes that the NHL, National Hockey League, the least diverse of our major sports leagues, set up a job fair in Florida as part of their All Star Weekend activities. So the planned All Star Weekend activities. The fair was advertised as for those that identify as female, Black, Asian, Pacific Islander, Hispanic, Latino, Indigenous, LGBTQ. IA plus and or a person with disability or veterans. And you can imagine what happens next, Nadia, right? So Florida's mm. governor. Mm. Oh. And it really always <laughs> comes back to the Florida's governor. Oh, this character. And his thirst for attention called yeah. on the NHL to remove the discriminatory prohibitions of the job fair. The NHL caved and they said that they had made a mistake. So I'm not going to talk about how incredibly effed up this is and the smallness of our friend there down there in, in Florida. But what it did make me think of was the fact that, you know, now an important element of any kind of uh, DEI initiative is really thinking through what steps that you will take as an organization for this type of pushback, almost anticipating yeah. that type of pushback, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, um, yeah. you know, and then think about what the NHL looks like now. They now have the worst of all worlds, right? They caved in. And now why would anyone who fits or identifies with any of those groups that I mentioned earlier yeah. Why would they feel like they would be a supportive employer going forward? They wouldn't. They I would. Mean, they have no reason they, to. Yeah. Yeah. It's not aligning to any sort of values that they probably had and conforming to this wildly outrageous government, whatever. And it's, has it even been approved through Congress? Like the, like this was more of like, I think a recommendation based off of something that Ron DeSantis suggested it's not that it's in law that they write that these folks the nhl or other organizations kind of promote you know marginalized groups or recruiting of marginalized groups and communities so it's a shame and i hope that the nhl does a little bit of reflection on this yeah i think i think you hit it right so if you're going to run or any kind of initiative right so if you're going to run a job fair for people underrepresented in your industry, part of the communication plan going forward really should be to think about how are we going to respond to these type of attacks and this type of mm -hmm. disinformation or claims of reverse discrimination. Right. And, you know, really the message here is that, you know, companies need to be proactive and, you know, think about how bad this is for Florida's competitiveness as well. Right. right. So if you think about the state of Florida, if the NHL hadn't picked Florida years ago to host this type of event, why would they why would they ever want to uh, hold an all-star game in Florida? Do you think they want to deal with this type of headache? Of course not. So right. I think this is going to have long-term ramifications. We'll see how it, how it go, plays it out. Plays but out. it's yeah. certainly uh, it's certainly harbinger, I think, things to come for the state of Florida. Yeah. Yeah. Shall we move on to my um, one of my deets here? Let's do um, it. Great. So JP Morgan's CEO, Jamie Dimon, um, is known for opposing remote work. So last week in a CNBC interview during the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, he had stated that remo remote work is not good for young people and managers, but can be perfectly reasonable for coders and researchers and women with child or parent care concerns. Um, he further went on to state that the pandemic taught us the burden on women as caretakers is enormous. So a few things that I want to break down in his comments. While it's great he's acknowledging women workers, particularly as there was like a disproportionate number of women affected by the impact of childcare in the pandemic, 
compare comparatively to men. I feel that his statements are still pretty biased. Like all genders have the responsibility of taking care of not only children, but perhaps like elderly parents or family members. And so I get what he was trying to convey and say in terms of like affording the flexibility to women. To me, it comes across as a little insensitive to folks who also have caretaking responsibilities. To me, this is like a leader. And you're when you make a bold statement like that, it just further perpetuates that only like women stay at home with their children. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is that it's really easy to categorize like all people and make assumptions that remote remote work um, does not work for like young people and managers. And when like when we start bucketing people like that, we oftentimes overlook the needs of our employees. So like, for example, we have to take in, into considerations and we've had prior guests on our show talk talk to us about this. Like right now, there are five generations in the workforce and yeah. there are several different you know, learning styles that we need to consider folks living with, like living with disabilities, asking those folks if remote work has made it more accessible to engage with like their teams and their work. Also considering people who are maybe neurodivergent, like seeking accommodation. I think of like personality people that are maybe more introverted Mm -hmm. than extrovert. Like I'm an extrovert. Even though I'm an extrovert, I actually get more work done in my in like remotely. Than that's because in you probably can't talk to people as much. <laughs> yeah, that's true, right? <laughs> so, uh, all of this to say is that there are like are a number of people who collaborate better in a remote world than perhaps in the office. So that's just another thing to consider. And then finally, I just want to offer that for managers, this is a tough one, especially for being able to observe an employee and offer like quality performance, coaching and feedback or comments, having that conversation for like performance. If you are a new employee to a role role, and like that onboarding experience is also so critical, especially in the first like 30, 60, 90 days of your employment. I think it's a delicate balance where you could, you could do remote work with supervision. And I'm certain that there are probably tools that are being developed as we speak to like track an employee's productivity and availability, you know, during the workday, if for some reason we don't leverage the tools that we already have our, at our disposal, I feel like there's, we could take advantage of like communication, transparency, trust, like building trust. Those are things that are already available to managers that can really help alleviate this assumption that like managers have to be in the office to like, be with their employees and observe work. So I'm rambling, but anything that you want to add to this, Rob? No, I, I appreciate that. And I think that you hit most of the things that I had. I obviously want to give Mr. Diamond the benefit of the doubt. It's an article, right? And so we, we see some of the quotes out of context. Sure. I, I, you know, I'm particularly sensitive when people make the assumption that childcare and any kind of other caregiver responsibilities are you know, solely the responsibility of women. We've talked about on this show before that women have out-earned men in terms of college degrees since the mid-1980s. The majority of med students are women now and in elite mm-hmm. business school programs as well. Women are coming the majority of the uh, participants in those programs. Right. So just to assume that women will forever be the primary caregivers is a little naive. It's so and, antiquated. And I guess the, the way that it's framed is I, he kind of says, 
I guess that it, you know, that, that remote work works for women is a little bit insulting, right? There's a, when I drop my son off at school, there's a lot of dads in sweatpants and a lot of moms in, in business suits, right? Yeah, and, and going sure. in opposite directions, right? Dad's yeah. going home uh, to take care of things. And so it's just, it's just a little bit naive. Or there might be two dads, right? Like, or two moms. Like, <laughs> sure. Like, come on, let's get to, like, it's just hilarious to me. Now, now to the point about young people and remote work not being good for them, as he yes. says, yeah. Yeah, I think what he's saying here is it's important to meet people, right? Like it's important to build relationships, important to bond sure. and to collaborate and to Absolutely. do it in person. And I think that's really undeniable. And I think there's some pretty unsettling trends about uh, loneliness in Gen Z and, and, and younger as well. However, the mistake that he makes is he assumes that the place where that has to happen is a big gray box called the office. Right? right. Like, you know, a sizable portion of young people, they don't want to be 24 year old Rob Hadley. Right. They don't want to be putting on a suit, taking the oh, subway, working 14 hour days <laughs> for, you know, working 24 or 14 hour days for very low pay in a gray yeah. office and a big cubicle farm. Right. Like yeah, they don't want to do that. And they really shouldn't. Right. They don't buy into that. And they really shouldn't. So there's something like three million people that make over 100,000 per year as influencers. Right. So, you know, young people get this. Right. And so the question is, how are we going to bring together young people? Uh, in a way that they can feel a sense of belonging and togetherness. And the answer is probably not that big, great building. Yeah, that's a great point. Thanks for sharing that. Awesome. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back with attorney Samia Kamani. Stay with us. Welcome back, folks. This week on Inclusive Collective Podcast, Samia Kamarni is a principal in the Boston, Massachusetts office of Jackson Lewis, PC, and a co-leader of the firm's workplace training group. She's also a member of the firm's corporate diversity counseling practice group, the corporate governance and internal investigations practice group, and the pay equity and sexual harassment resource groups. Samia concentrates her practice in employment counseling, investigations, training, and policy development on behalf of management. She is a frequent speaker, commentator, and author of various audiences and publications on workplace law topics such as harassment, investigations, diversity and inclusion, discrimination, pay equity, arbitration, agreements, and class action waivers. Samia, we are so grateful you could join us. Welcome to the Inclusive Collective Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Sami, it's a pleasure to meet you at a very high level. I know in your line of work, you've counseled a number of your clients around the list, the uh, legal risks associated with DEI in the workplace. What are some of the big legal guardrails that you think about uh, as they relate to diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yeah, thanks. Um, so so look, let's take a step back for a minute, because if we talk about the law. The law really hasn't changed much, mm. but what's been happening is changing and evolving. So DEI has been discussed for decades, and I like to call it the speak out evolution. So I've been doing this a long time, almost 30 years, actually. And back in the day, as my kids mm. would say, <laughs> you'd have to beg to get employers to do simple harassment, EEO training, and those were compliance-based initiatives and programs. And then they'd stopped at the training. And that was it. That was your diversity initiative. Right. And then diversity included, you know, diversity with ear quotes just meant there was a diversity committee and you had events. Mm -hmm. And mm. then it kind of evolved to ERGs. And then you heard the phrase DEI is a business imperative and you saw kind of more movement. And then 
fast forward, we have hashtag me too. Mm. More people are listening. More people are talking. Voices amplified by social media, right? And mm. expectations are changing. Followed quickly by COVID and the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, 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 right? And then right. we have hashtag Black Lives Matter, hashtag mm. Stop Asian Heat. And what did we see by the summer of 2020, the fall of 2020, employers, DEI initiatives took on like a fervor almost, right? And a lot of initiatives were started and stopped and sometimes hastily executed. And, you know, you had executives making statements and people making commitments Mm. about goals and metrics that they didn't kind of stop and think about. So, Mm. and so what's happening? You know, everybody is asking questions. Stakeholders are demanding transparency and more information. And now they want to see what's happened since that time. And so companies are publishing data and reports and statistics showing progress. And sometimes that same data is being used as evidence in class actions against them brought by current and former employees in underrepresented groups saying not enough movement, right? And need to improve is being signaled. Mm. And at the same time, we're seeing strong currents of pushback, right? Mm -hmm. Against such calls for social justice. Yeah, right. Right? And I know we're going to talk in a bit, or at least I think we're going to talk in a bit, or we should talk in a bit about reverse discrimination and sort of the uptick in those cases and what that is. But there are class actions alleging that companies discriminate against majority groups, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Based on the existence of those diversity initiatives, they're allegations that the employer favors younger Indian employees based on company policies that favor diversity, right? Mm -hmm. We have external stakeholders challenging DEI initiatives with the support of certain legal activist groups, such as the National Center for Public Policy Research, mm-hmm. the American Civil Rights Project, right? These challenges are demanding that corporations put DEI initiatives to a vote, yeah. conduct studies on the effect of their training, or just demand yeah. that they end their DEI initiatives altogether, mm. right? Yeah. And if those letters don't get the response, they file lawsuits. Right. There's a case that alleges that the employer violated its fiduciary duty by adopting um, DEI policies that discriminate based on race because they incentivize leaders to establish a more diverse workforce or a more diverse supply Uh, chain. Right. So there's all these movements out there. But you asked me about the guardrails. So that's really what. What I just summarized, and I know you know that all of this, but what I just summarized is kind of what's happening. Mm. That's an evolution, but what really hasn't changed very much is the law, right? The law still is mm. that generally employers can't make decisions based on protected characteristics. Should I give you a chance to talk? Like, what's a protected characteristic? Yeah. tell Like, that's so interesting <laughs> because if the law hasn't changed, like, what's then what's what is happening right now in this, like, in this movement? Like, what's, what's, what are the differences? Like, I, it's so interesting. And so, so guardrail, mm. right? You still can't 
make decisions based on race or gender. You can't mm-hmm. say, I'm going to pick Nadia over Rob for this job mm-hmm. because she's a woman. Right. We can pick Nadia over Rob for the job because she's the most qualified and happens to be a woman. Mm. Right. And so, so that hasn't changed. Right. The fact that there can't be quotas, like that's a guardrail, right? Like right. you can't have quota. Like everybody in this space like knows, okay, we're not supposed to have quotas. So, um, well, and it's interesting you say that because I would actually argue that like DE&I practitioners, not every single one, but I think there are many that don't recognize that there are legal guardrails and legal ramifications and that they should not be advising clients on certain things that have to do with the law because they may not be familiar with them, right? So if you're a DE&I practitioner and you're not an attorney and not familiar with, I would imagine, employment you know, law, then really leaving it up to the the lawyers to to kind of advise or counsel employers is probably best. Yeah. And so as a practical matter, I think what we saw is, and, you know, and depending on organizations, some organizations are very good at this and others are less good at this. Right. And so some are very good about or some are not so good if they have DEI initiatives kind of being done in a vacuum Mm -hmm. and they're not kind of recognizing, okay, wait a second. I'm making these statements. That's like, looks a lot more like a quota than an aspirational goal. Mm. Aspirational goals. Like the law says, like you can say, I want to improve my, representation of certain underrepresented groups. Right. And that is not direct evidence of discrimination, right? Right. But when those aspirational goals start looking like quotas, it's when it, it becomes problematic. And so what, from a very practical standpoint, it's kind of like, hey, let's make sure that we have the right decision makers in the room mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with enough time to think about and evaluate whether what the risks are associated with this action, right? Because it doesn't mean you don't do something. It means you do something and you kind of know, like, okay, here's here's the value of doing something this way. Mm-hmm. And here are the potential risks. And then you make decisions just like anything else. But like they, if you don't have sort of if if the DEI group is making decisions siloed decisions without touching base with the right business people, without touching base with HR or the legal, something's going to be dropped. And so other piece that I feel very strongly about, and so we can talk about it whenever you want, but I think communication and messaging is so important Mm -hmm. because when you say we want to, you know, we're laying out these various DEI initiatives, what people are hearing, like what you don't want people to walk away with is, oh, this means I have to go out and hire only fill in the blank. Right, right. So like, how are you messaging that? Correct. Like, yeah. and so that's why I think, you know, training in its various forms is so critical, but it's all part of an overall strategy and communication. Absolutely. That's great. I want to switch gears. So Ronnie D, governor of Florida, <laughs> Rob's Rob's favorite person in the world. <laughs> Just kidding. Not a fan. Um, 
Yeah. Not a fan. But on their statewide website in Florida, there's a flyer that's that says stop woke, right? So which indicates that this bill would protect teachers and students from critical race theory curriculum. It also says that it will protect employees against hostile work environments due to CRT training. Just from your perspective, like what are the implications of this, you know, stop woke, anti-woke bill? You know, how would that impact corporations? Yeah. So, so HP7, I think it's so interesting. It, and, and it's dubbed the Stop Woke Act and it stands for wrongs to our kids and employees. Mm. And it's actually modeled on former President Trump's failed executive order. Do you remember this? The executive yeah. order combating race and sex stereotyping. Right. Mm-hmm. It prohibited federal contractors and agencies for mandating the same type of training. I mean, yeah. it, it was modeled on those that executive order. Now, um, when Biden... When President Biden took office, he reversed that executive order, right? Right. So the Florida law was signed in April 22, and it went into effect in July. But by August, a federal district court in Florida issued an injunction prohibiting its enforcement. Mm -hmm. Um, And talk about reading. That's a great decision to read. In Mm. the first paragraph, he actually described Florida as a, quote, upside down world and compared it to the one depicted in Stranger Things. Oh, really? Did you read (laughs) this? No, I didn't read that. That's hilarious. Okay. Yeah. And so anyway, um, so you talked about implications. Like, so right now that law is subject to an injunction. The thing's being litigated right now. But but I think the most important takeaway is that there are similar laws in other states in the work. And I think it really reflects the reckoning that's happening, right? Like for every DEI and like push forward, mm-hmm. for every ardent supporter, there's a detractor. Mm-hmm. And so like it's just this like push and pull. And so what are the implications? I don't think employers stop doing training. I think they do thoughtful training. Hmm. I right? Like I think, like for me, I think the managers, they are not born knowing that as people who make influence or recommend employment-related decisions, they stand in the shoes of the organization and what they say and what they do matters matters right and that right and so like and that they need to pull people in and inclusive leadership is not something that somebody just like learns like you have to be intentional about it and so that means that we do need to talk about things like okay you go to a situation you have imperfect information you fill in those blanks with your whole life's experiences and everything and that's what you do and sometimes you spot on and sometimes you're wrong. Mm-hmm. So how can we, right? So having those conversations in the multiple way, I mean, you can say it's not training, but it is. But it has to be part of an overall, like, kind of curriculum strategic approach. Yeah, of course. Right. Yeah, and I think, and so you mentioned, I, I did want to go back to, you mentioned the upside down world that we sometimes feel like we're living in. 
And I do think that uh, I've seen a lot lately that often lawyers, corporate counsel, inside companies are almost more worried about they overweight the risks of that reverse discrimination suit versus the risks of actual discrimination, of not creating an environment where everyone feels welcome, where you can actually get sued for real discrimination, which can be very costly as well. Do you do you have the same sense or and, and do you have any idea what the ratio is between discrimination and reverse discrimination suits? Oh, so so what a great question. And I actually was was thinking about this. So I actually don't think that's the case. Right? Like so the in-house person's job is to make people aware of the risk, but it's the typically it's other people's decisions in the company kind of like what to do about it, right? And so they have to raise the issue. But there are plenty of organizations out there that say, okay, I'm going to do X or I'm going to do Y. I know there's the potential for a reverse discrimination suit, but I'm going to do it anyway because not just because, like back in the day, people used to take these initiatives just to try and avoid or mitigate the risks associated with litigation. Hmm. But I think these, these initiatives are far beyond that. Like they're not to avoid discrimination litigation. They're being instituted because there's a real recognition that this is like an imperative, like a business imperative adds value. Like we are not going to be competitive or successful in any of our efforts unless we become more diverse, more inclusive. Right. And so when that's the focus, mm-hmm. I think people aren't saying, well, there's going to be a reverse discrimination lawsuit, so we're not going to focus on this. I think they're saying, wait a second, hey, you manager, if you think the directive is that you can only look at certain candidates for a job, you're wrong. Mm-hmm. What we're saying is we have to do, there's so many things we can do to improve diversity and inclusion short of making discriminatory decisions, right? right? And so I think it's a, it's a shift in looking at it, right? And I think that the reverse discrimination, those are hard cases to prove. Like most, most of them aren't. I mean, they're really interesting. Mm, yeah. I love Surely that. <laughs> Thanks for yeah. saying that. I like that. <laughs> well, yeah, they're not winning. I mean, it, like, they're interesting cases. I mean, some are s- s- sort of kind of still pending, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's one where the employee who is a Caucasian male teacher argued that he's not an extreme racist, but... Instead, he's just a man who finds no problem using a certain super offensive word when addressing okay. his African-American principal or oh, wow. multiracial classroom. And, and the court in Kentucky, I think, yeah, the court in Kentucky said, like, basically, this is totally bizarre. Yeah. And instead of focusing on that distraction argument of whether or not this employee is a racist. We're going to focus on the question of whether he showed that he was discriminated against. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't. Wow. 
case dismissed. Right? Yeah. Case <laughs> dismissed. I Wait, love when you say that. Case dismissed. We could case yes. dismissed, right? Yeah. Rick. Wild. That would be a good. That would be a good show. Us going through all the different reverse discrimination cases out there, and just kind of at the end, you just say, "Yeah, case dismissed." Yeah. Well, there's one against. I think there was one against Chick Fil A, um, where the employee a few days after the killing of George Floyd made some comments about some other person. Well. That person looks like a protester. He should be out in the rain. Like it was a disparaging comment towards mm. Black Lives Matter. Mm. And a few months later, he was terminated. His employment was terminated because of his comment mm. as being insensitive, unprofessional, inappropriate. And the court basically said, wait, he wasn't discriminated against. He was fired because he made an inappropriate remark. It had nothing to do with his race. Like, yeah, yeah. It's unprofessional, inappropriate, yeah. And so, I mean, the logical extension of that being, um, you know, if anybody made that comment, they they would have been subjected to. Right. Yep. Samia, there's tons of layoffs happening right now, right, in the tech sector for various reasons, maybe the recession, economic kind of economics within the U.S. I'm curious you know, because women in particular were leaving the workplace at a higher rate, specifically during the pandemic, and then now we're seeing these layoffs, we're seeing like attrition occur. What do you think are the implications for employers, but more particularly from, I'm curious, like not just a disparity in the workforce in terms of gender, but also just like what are the implications for like pay equity and for for all of kind of the benefits and so forth? Like if women are not represented in the workforce, I would imagine that then the focus is diminished. Is like what would what are kind of your thoughts around that? So I think just first of all, the lack of diversity of perspective, if yeah. there are just fewer, like so that's just like the given. Yeah. But also I feel like the Assuming that's true, and I, and I read something recently, um, McKinsey did a, a study recently, and Forbes, it was, there was an article in Forbes, and they were talking about kind of the why, like why are women leaving? And one of the reasons was because of frustration with not being promoted. So mm. I feel like any progress that was made <laughs> was like, would be kind of, yeah be going backwards and what was interesting about and I didn't read the study I read the article about the study but it talked about the broken rung hmm. that that first promotion that first opportunity from for promotion is is where the like the delay is happening yeah uh, which okay. kind of sets you back though the whole time so I think that employers would be well served to focus on the why hmm. Particularly from a promotional perspective. Well, or why are people leaving? Why are people leaving? Yeah. And that's why I think those, you know, you can call them what you want, assessments, climate studies, audits, like paying attention to those, like, is important to... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's right. not even and just like conducting the, the survey or the assessment, but it's then problem solving to understand, like, you now you've identified the gap. But like now you have to problem solve around that gap. And I think that's where companies miss that 
mark. Is that problem? Yeah. And then, happening? and so there are a lot of kind of assessments happening, but then, you know, there are guardrails in your language. Mm -hmm. There are guardrails associated with those too. Like, you're thoughtful about it. Who's doing them? What are employees being told? Is there a mechanism that if an employee tells you something that requires you to take action that you can actually do that? Mm -hmm. Are you doing, when you're doing pay analyses, who's doing them? Who's getting the data? Is it subject to the attorney-client privilege? Is it not? Right? Like all of those things. It just has to be. And again, it's about communicating and making sure the right stakeholders are in the room so that valid business decisions can be made. Me. Sure. Super great advice. Super, super great. Well, Samir Karmani, thank you so much for joining us on Inclusive Collective this week. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back for our con reflections and raves and rants. Welcome back, folks. We just finished chatting with Sami Kermani and are at the Calm Reflections point of our episode. Rob, what did you take away from the conversation we had with Samia? I, You know, Nadia, that one of my hobbies is yeah, I'm kind of an armchair legal expert. Yeah. So I'm, I'm all in when we get to yeah. talk legal. You DEI, right? You love it. And should I you have gone to law school? Like, should we try to find you an avenue to lot. law school? It, my wife is is on this. She's like, okay. why? She says because I like to argue all the time. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I should be. I should have gone to law school. No, I think it's just really important. I I loved that the exchange where Samia talked about the fact that one, that's what the in-house counsel's job is, is to is to work very closely with the business and with HR yeah. and to figure out what you're trying to do and help you get there. And, and, and perhaps she hasn't experienced that or perhaps, you know, in, in her experience that sometimes lawyers are, are much more likely to say, no, we can't do that as opposed mm -hmm. to, as opposed to let's try to figure out a way to make this happen. I think it's just really, really important because of the approach that I take, which is, using data in order to develop strategies and solve problems around DEI. And so having a really close relationship with legal counsel is, is just vital to doing that. And so I, I was just really happy with the, with the way that she framed it um, yeah. and, and, and how that, how she approaches her work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So it's that time for rants and raves. We did the coin toss and I'm going to go first because um, I have a rant and let's do it. Rant. My rant this week, I feel like we have been saying this like for the last few months, but I'm just there. So there were another set of layoffs this past week, last week, actually, with um, Google. And then we had heard Microsoft earlier. There's this inhumane way in which layoffs keep occurring, like the process of someone getting like employees are getting emails late at night. Managers are not informed prior to the layoff. I just feel like chaos is like, you know, chaos ensues. <laughs> I am ranting in that, like, let's be really equitable and fair and how we are dismissing folks. This is definitely one way that we not only lose trust with like the employees that were 
that were laying off, but also those survivors. Like there's now there's just like survivors guilt at organizations. I think you had talked about that a couple of months ago. And so I just want to I'm just really angry and annoyed with like how layoffs are occurring and um, really hoping that the survivors and within the organization like are OK. So just thinking of those those people. I have been astonished by some of the stories. It's like we've gone very far backward in some of these in, like in the use of technology to lay people off. Uh, I, I've just been astounded consider people and in the way in which you lay them off and how you lay them off because people will remember that they will remember how they were treated and you know what there's going to be stories people now have a story once they leave to be like either i'll never work for x company again because of the way they treated me when they laid me off i have that grudge like i will never work for a prior employer because of the way that they handled my layoff yeah so anyways, that's my rant. <laughs> Let's end right, on a gonna, positive note. What's your rave? All right. I'm going to double rave here, Nadia. We're talking about Bank of America, which has promoted 360 employees to managing director, over 50% of which are from underrepresented backgrounds. Apparently, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs did the same in recent weeks. And so this is something that you can do, right? If you are an organization and you lack representation at the highest mm -hmm. levels of the company, you can just promote people. Right. Like you, oh, wow. it's, a, a, it's a, a, it's a lever that you can pull. And obviously you want yeah. to do a sufficient justification, but companies have the power to do this and to very quickly change representation within their organization. So I like it. Obviously, hopefully they did, they did a good job of doing it, but um, it was, yeah. that was encouraging and something, my final rave, Nadia, double rave, something you probably do not know. I'm almost certain that you do not know this, that the Denver okay. Broncos are looking for a new okay. coach. And are down to five finalists. Yeah, I'm sure you didn't. Down to five finalists. D'Amico Ryans, David Shaw, Jim Caldwell, Raheem Morris, and Ejiro Evero. And the one thing that all these candidates have in common is they're all black men. And so okay. that's the first time that's ever certainly happened. And one of the leaders on the search committee is former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. Oh. And so this is very cool and something that uh, to be very proud of uh, as a Denver Broncos fan. Uh, okay. Very, very interesting. Sports. Love it. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Rob, for that. Those are great raves. Well, folks, we are at the end of this episode. Inclusive Collective is a production of Refillion Media. We would love to hear from you. So send us your feedback at inclusivecollective at refillion.com. You can find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Uh, we also just released a newsletter. So please subscribe to our newsletter um, where you'll hear some tidbits from prior episodes. Um, if you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. If you um, want to get in touch with us for consulting services, check out Nadia at nasconsultants.com and Rob at taconoconsulting.com. Thanks again to our guest, Samia Germani of Jackson Lewis. We'll be back next week. Be well. Bye.